Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Essex Court Chambers 10 in 10 podcast series. Last week, I was joined by Tim Aku and James Sheehan to discuss the epic litigation involving Ablyazov. This week, our attention turns to a completely different area of law and a different area of practice, namely public international law, PIL for short, or what I like to call state-on-state action. This week, I'm joined by Alison McDonald QC and Jackie MacArthur, both from Chambers, and we're going to discuss together the case of Gambia and Myanmar. Alison McDonald QC joined Chambers early this year from Matrix Chambers, having taken Silk in 2017. The legal directories describe her as a sensational advocate with killer litigation instincts and very cool under pressure. Jackie MacArthur is a junior member of Chambers called in 2015. In that time, she has already developed a diverse practice spanning commercial law as well as PIL and other practice areas, proven by her appointment to the Attorney General's seat panel last July. She takes instructions regularly from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office Legal Directorate and has developed particular expertise in Brexit-related issues, advising various government departments. So, Alison, perhaps we could start by asking you why you've chosen to talk about this case today. Well, there's been so many developments in international law in the last decade that it was quite a difficult task to narrow it down to just one case. But we decided to look at something that's going on in the present day. So we chose the Gambia-Myanmar case, um, which is going on before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, partly because it gave rise to a really important decision in January this year in relation to provisional measures. And even since then, more developments, which we think are really good example of how international law is trying to adapt to the challenges of the modern world. We also wanted to choose a case that we're not involved in because one of the constraints in international law is that in cases between states, you're generally acting for a government in relation to things which are really politically sensitive. And so advocates don't generally speak much publicly about the cases that they're involved in. So we thought that this was a good neutral case, if you like, that would allow us to have a really good discussion of the issues without that constraint that we're under in relation to our own work. Although that said, the issues in the Gambia-Myanmar case also do tie into some very interesting work that Jackie and I are currently doing together in relation to another situation, which we might touch on a bit later in the conversation. Thank you. And that's an interesting point and not something which is readily apparent to those perhaps not familiar with this practice area. Jackie, if I may turn to you, could you explain a little bit more about the issues in this particular case? Yes, Stephen. Um, This is a claim that was uh, brought by Gambia against Myanmar in the International Court of Justice. It was brought under the Genocide Convention and Gambia alleged that Myanmar is guilty of genocide against a group of people called the Rohingya. What the claim essentially is about is some military operations by the Myanmar military against an ethnic and religious minority group, the Rohingya, who live mainly in Rohingya state, a state that's near the border with Bangladesh. The majority of Myanmar is Buddhist, but the Rohingya are are Muslim. 
um, in October 2016, the Myanmar military began what they called clearance operations against Rohingya villages, which they said were in retaliation for an attack on a few police posts by, uh, by members of the Rohingya group. And then in August 2017, so the following year, there were further so-called clearance operations, again, in supposed retaliation for an attack on security forces outposts. Now, Gambia says that the clearance operations and other military operations around them have deliberately targeted civilian villages occupied by the Rohingya. And they said that the military have done things like burning down houses with inhabitants inside and other types of mass killing, mass violence and mass rape. To connect these alleged facts with the law, the definition of genocide under the Genocide Convention is doing certain specific acts with an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group as such. And the specific acts that can constitute genocide are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting conditions of life that are calculated to destroy the group, measures to prevent births or forcibly transferring children to another group. It's the intent requirement that I referred to first that is really distinctive about genocide marks it out as being an especially serious type of international crime and is also what makes the crime often so hard to prove. The specific judgment that Alison and I are talking about, as she said, concerned a request for provisional measures on the basis that the Myanmar military is continuing its attacks at the moment or is likely to continue them in the future if the international court doesn't step in to prevent it before the case is finally heard and decided. And of course, um, most of us and most of those listening will be aware of the plight of the Rohingya Muslims um, from the international news. It's not immediately obvious, uh, perhaps to many of us, as to why Gambia specifically is involved. Alison, perhaps you could uh, explain that. Yeah, that's something that definitely looks unusual from the perspective of sort of domestic law notions of standing. Um, and there's a particular reason for that in international law. So Gambia obviously wasn't arguing that it had been directly affected as a state in the sense that any of its nationals had been victims of the attacks and the deportations or anything like that. The reason that they could get involved in this particular case is because of the legal nature of the crime of genocide in international law. And Jackie's explained a bit about the elements of that crime. This is what is called in international law an erga omnes norm. And what these are is a very small handful of rights and obligations, which under international law states owe to the community of nations as a whole. And they only really arise when very fundamental values are at stake. And the prohibition of genocide is one of these erga omnes norms. And what that means procedurally is that in principle, any state can invoke it. Now, Myanmar didn't take issue with the erga omnes nature of the prohibition on genocide. That would really have been very difficult to argue in a legal sense because that's been very firmly um, established from for decades, really, since the Second World War. But instead, what Myanmar argued was that the right of 
states like the Gambia, who are geographically unrelated to the situation, their right to invoke the prohibition on genocide was what they said subsidiary to the rights of the states most closely involved. So what they were basically saying was that Bangladesh was the most directly affected state, Bangladesh being the destination where most of the Rohingya expulsions had led to. So there was a massive expulsion of Rohingyas into the territory of Bangladesh. And they were basically saying, if Bangladesh wasn't bringing a claim, and it it hasn't done, then um, third states, unrelated states, weren't entitled to come in themselves. They weren't entitled, if you like, to be the sort of primary claimants. Now, the court disagreed with that, and that's obviously a very important question, because if they had agreed, what that would mean would be that there would be a procedural requirement, if you like, that the most directly affected state had to bring a claim in order to allow any other members of the international community to participate, which would have been a potentially serious hurdle to these cases getting off the ground, depending on the politics and the willingness of the most geographically affected states. So the court disagreed firmly with that. So it said, just read a little bit from the judgment from paragraph 41, because this was a very significant finding. It was discussing the Gambia's standing, and it said, I quote, in view of their shared values, all the state's parties to the Genocide Convention have a common interest to ensure that acts of genocide are prevented, and that if they occur, their authors do not enjoy impunity. That common interest implies that the obligations in question are owed by any state party to all the other state parties to the convention. Uh, And they went on to conclude that it follows that any state party to the Genocide Convention, not only a specially affected state, may invoke the responsibility of another state party with a view to ascertaining the alleged failure to comply with its obligations over omnes partes and to bring that failure to an end. Now, there was a, there's a very uh, sort of interesting but technical legal question about whether the court was describing the prohibition of genocide as a prohibition erga omnes, meaning you know all states, whether or not they're a party to the genocide convention, or the narrower, slightly legally more conservative view that they took was in, they only needed to find that it was an obligation erga omnes parties. In other words, an obligation owed between everybody who was a party to the Genocide Convention. So they took that slightly more conservative path, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the merits and whether uh, they try the Gambia tries to broaden that legally or just keeps to the path that's been successful so far. I mean, the court only needed to make a finding of prima facie standing at the stage of provisional measures. So in theory... Myanmar could revisit this argument at the merit stage, but I think it's incredibly difficult to imagine the court deciding this point differently later on in the case. So, I mean, that's that's the sort of legal basis of why, legally speaking, Gambia could get involved. Obviously, that then leaves the sort of real-world political question of why, of all the states in the world who could have brought this claim, why it was the Gambia that actually did it. And obviously that just takes us on from the world of law to the world of politics, which is something that's obviously fundamental to international law and really closely entwined with legal developments. And the Gambia has made it clear that its case is being funded by the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperations, and clearly part of its motivation was the religious commonality with the Rohingya Muslim community. And I think 
one thing that also may be significant is that Gambia's Attorney General and Minister of Justice, who heads the Gambia's legal team, is reported to have been formerly a special assistant to the prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So he would have particular awareness of this area of the law and of the legal avenues that are available in this field. And I think that's a good reminder, really, that states are run by human individuals. Uh, And certainly in my experience, getting cases off the ground takes real personal commitment and buy-in from key senior government people. And the cases where the commitment is there from those individuals because of, for whatever reasons, because of their interests, because of the things that they're committed to, because of their individual values, those are the cases that get off the ground and then the ones that run most smoothly. And we've heard mention made of the provisional measures phase or application in these proceedings before the ICJ. Jackie, can you just explain what was decided in that context? Uh, Yes, Stephen, to to put everyone uh, out of suspense, the uh, International Court of Justice did order that provisional measures be granted um, against Myanmar. Um, to, to, To explain, to grant provisional measures, the court said that it had to be satisfied of four things. Um, keeping in mind that this was an, uh, a sort of an interlocutory proceeding rather than the full merits proceeding, so it wouldn't be fully deciding on the actual merits of the case. The four things that it had to find were, first, that there was um, a dispute between the parties. Um, and the court looked particularly at the existence of um, a report written by a UN fact-finding mission um, into what had happened in Myanmar and and what was continuing to happen in Myanmar. Um, that report was tabled before the General Assembly and discussed at the General Assembly. And the report uh, detailed some of what Gambia, some of the facts that Gambia relies upon in its application to the court. And the, the report also actually concluded that what had happened and was happening probably constituted genocide. Now, Gambia and the General Assembly made statements in support of the report and Myanmar attacked the report. And the um, International Court of Justice said that these two statements, these two sets of statements, constitute a difference of views on what is happening in Rohingya state and that this is enough to make out a dispute between the parties in order to enliven the court's jurisdiction. Second, the International Court of Justice Um, had to be satisfied that um, if what Gambia alleges has been done, uh, if that is proven at the merit stage, that this is capable of amounting to genocide. And uh, the uh, International Court of Justice said that those uh, factual acts can constitute the specific types of acts that can constitute genocide. The next thing that the court had to be satisfied of is that Gambia had standing and this really uh, relates back to the Erga Omnes or Erga Omnes Partes issue that Alison has just talked about um, and that the court found, yes, that the Gambia does have standing, at least uh, on a provisional measures basis. Uh, next, the court had to be satisfied that the provisional measures being asked for would protect relevant rights. And here the International Court of Justice drew a connection from the rights of the Rohingya to be protected from genocide to Myanmar's obligation under the Genocide Convention to not commit genocide 
not support genocide uh, and, and sort of associated obligations. And then from there to the rights of other parties to the, the Genocide Convention to seek Myanmar's compliance with its obligations. Court uh, said that the relevant rights being protected are the rights of the Rohingya and also the rights of all the other parties to, to the Genocide Convention, noting that it already found that the acts that Gambia complains of, if true, are capable of constituting genocide. Importantly, in making this finding, the court said that it did not need to determine at this stage whether a genocidal intent by Myanmar had been made out. They said this is something that will be really looked into at the merit stage. And uh, keeping in mind that genocidal intent is what really sets genocide apart from other types of crimes and what makes it so serious, this is perhaps controversial that the International Court uh, sort of kicked this off to the merit stage rather than really looking into it uh, deeply at the provisional measure stage. Uh, the fourth thing that the court needs to look, needed to look at is whether there is an urgent risk of irreparable prejudice if provisional measures were not granted. Now, Myanmar contested this and said, look, the clearance operations were, were two, uh, two incidents and they're over now. Um, they said that they were engaged in repatriation proceedings to try to help Rohingyas to return from Bangladesh to their villages. And Myanmar also said that it intended to promote ethnic reconciliation and peace and stability, and that it intended to take steps to hold its military accountable for anything that they had done wrong as part of these clearance operations. The International Court of Justice gave this really quite short shrift and said these weren't sufficient steps to remove the risk of further acts of genocide. And they specifically criticised Myanmar for not presenting what they called concrete measures to recognise and protect the Rohingya as a group. So with these steps being satisfied, the court granted four provisional measures. Firstly, that Myanmar must take all measures within its power to prevent the commission against the Rohingya in its territory of acts that are within the physical scope of genocide, that is killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting conditions of life intended to destroy the group and measures to prevent births. And you'll note that in this provisional measure, the court didn't make any reference at all to a genocidal intent. It just banned the commission of these acts without linking them to any genocidal intent. Secondly, uh, the second provisional measure ordered is to ensure that the military and armed groups subject to the military's control or direction do not commit genocide. Thirdly, that Myanmar take effective measures to prevent destruction of evidence. And fourthly, that Myanmar provide a report every six months on how it's complying with the provisional measures order. Oh, thank you, Jackie. So those provisional measures or that provisional measures order obviously has resonance and echoes with interim relief in other contexts, but it does very much sound like what you might call a geopolitical injunction. Uh, that's what the court granted, but has it been effective on the ground and how has it been implemented? Well, problems with policing implementation um, of orders is always one big criticism of international court decisions and of public international law in particular. Uh, 
it, it's, it seems that the International Court had that particularly in mind when it crafted the provisional measures that it granted. Um, and in particular, you'll see uh, that the first provisional measure that was ordered, the prohibition on doing certain types of acts, um, is a really very broad prohibition, which, as I've noted, essentially does away with the requirement specific to genocide, that there be an intent to destroy the group. Um, so that's an order that is much more easy to determine whether it's being breached and therefore much more easy perhaps to, to take steps in response to a breach. Um, and then the second thing to note is that the fourth provisional measure that was ordered is a requirement to provide a report every six months on compliance with the other provisional measures. So regular progress reports have to be provided not just to the international court but also to to the gambia that's to the complainant um so that also um sort of facilitates um steps being taken to ensure that there's compliance with the order or at least to be able to determine whether the order has been breached and to come back for further provisional measures at any rate it's clear that this is likely to be an important test case for how effective enforcement of international court decisions can be. And this is especially significant in the context of genocide because it's quite unusual for there to be recourse to um, an international court in order to try to stop genocide that is in the middle of happening. In the past, there's been use of force by countries, sometimes um, uh, usually under the aegis of an international organisation or under the uh, UN, United Nations Security Council, uh, in, in invoking a doctrine that's sometimes called the responsibility to protect, where military forces go into a country in which genocide is, is happening and attempt to stop it. This has often been very controversial in the past, and it also often depends on the Security Council in particular being willing to endorse action, which is subject to some pretty serious political considerations and sometimes it's just not possible to, to get that endorsement. If the International Court of Justice's intervention in this case can be shown to have protected Rohingya from future acts of genocide, this could be really quite significant in terms of how the world responds to genocide in the future. And what happens now in this case? Well, I mean, firstly, picking up on Jackie's point about enforcement. I think there's, as you mentioned, the reporting, that the periodic reporting that Myanmar is obliged to do to the court. I think there is one, one real question that's been raised is the fact that these reports at the moment are not due to be published. So obviously, you know, you can say, well, that helps, that helps to Myanmar to be candid in its reports with the court, if you think that they would be likely to be. But I do think that that really does pose a challenge to the legitimacy of the process, because apart from anything else, it means that the people themselves affected, the Rohingya community, can't know what Myanmar is saying about what it's doing to bring this situation to an end. So the, when it was made clear that the reports weren't going to be published, this was quite understandably met with dismay by the Rohingya community, and I think, I think rightly so. Um, in terms of what happens now, the case is going to go forward to the merit stage. So this means one and possibly two rounds of written pleadings. Gambia's are due to be filed this month and Myanmar's next July, which is the hectic pace of international litigation. 
um, the deadlines have been pushed back by some months because of the pandemic. But you, you can still see that although the provisional measures phase can come on in this case and other cases can come on reasonably fast, merits phase is still um, a pretty sort of lumbering beast in the International Court of Justice, I would say. Um, after that, at some point, there'll be a hearing on the merits. And in the meantime, there's a couple of other developments which I find quite interesting. First development is the fact that Canada and the Netherlands have recently announced that they're going to apply to intervene in the case to support the um, to support the Gambia, to support the Gambia in its arguments, and they're going to have a particular focus on the sexual violence aspect of the allegations. There's a couple of different um, articles of the ICJ statute, Article 62 and Article 63, that permit intervention in the court's discretion and international law geeks will um, debate which of those routes they'll use, when they'll make that application, whether it would be decided before or after the court had ruled on its jurisdiction, and some other sort of interesting technical questions. But I think the broader significance is that two further states have said, look, we're, you know, we're stepping up and we want to support this effort. We've got no um, specific victims in this conflict, nothing like that, but we just want to support the values of the international community and um, contribute to the argument. So I think that's significant. Maldives has also said that it is considering intervening, but I think we haven't heard more on that recently. Um, and the second thing, which I find very interesting, is there's been an application made by the Gambia, by the Gambia's legal team in the US courts, US federal courts under section 1782 of the US code. So this is a federal statute which will be quite familiar to arbitration practitioners probably because this is the one that allows the compelling of testimony statements or documentation quote for use in proceedings in a foreign or international tribunal. This is obviously this has been got traction in recent years as a way of getting discovery essentially for, to support international arbitrations. But it's a novel twist, and I, I'm pretty sure the first time that it's ever been used in this way for ICJ proceedings. So it's a, it, if this succeeds, it's a very interesting precedent. And the factual basis for this is that Facebook, and you may have seen this was reported, it's been reported in the press for a few years now, has been hugely criticised for really what seems to have been incredible laxness in allowing its platform, to, which is very widely used in Myanmar, to publish horrendous hate speech against the Rohingya, which UN, the UN fact-finding mission on Myanmar, which is a really important source of evidence that has supported the provisional measures application, has been really damning about Facebook's failures to tackle how its platform was used to fan, essentially fan the hatred that contributes um, to this kind of this kind of situation, and also its subsequent failures to cooperate with the investigations into it. So it's a pretty sorry picture all round. So uh, what Gam the Gambia is looking for in the U.S. courts is material from various accounts that Facebook eventually shut down, run by specific Myanmar military leaders and others, uh, and they're also looking at, for material about Facebook's internal investigations into the use of this. So I, and I think this is a very interesting attempt to so international law is often seen as quite a sort of old-fashioned place certainly procedurally speaking and I think this this use of the domestic courts and this use of disclosure applications is a very interesting attempt to 
look at something which is a very modern phenomenon, which is the role of social media in, as I say, in sort of fanning the hatred that underpins um, these kind of situations. And particularly in a context where there's usually virtually no chance of getting an international tribunal to order any sort of disclosure, I think this is a very, quite a creative and very interesting thing that not only international lawyers, but people who are interested in the, you know, the role of social media generally and its its obligations to society will be watching quite closely. Yes, indeed. And that social media dimension isn't something that I myself had appreciated. And that does indeed have broader relevance, potentially. And what other ways does this case have um, relevance beyond its own parameters in the world today, do you think? Well, the big one uh, is that it, it shows that the world can take legal action to protect the vulnerable and that, that legal procedures can be used to do that. Of course, that's subject to um, questions of enforcement and uh, how effective uh, the enforcement um, of these provisional measures and any final decision that eventually comes actually is. But it's highly applicable to other ongoing situations. For example, the situation of the the Uyghur minority group in Xinjiang in China, where there's daily evidence emerging of how this group is being treated by the Chinese state. And there's widespread concern about the commission of potential crimes against humanity or or genocide against the Uyghurs. Um, This, the, the, the ICJ case, Um, concerning the Rohingyas um, also potentially has significance um, in relation to uh, court proceedings uh, in relation to other erga omnes norms other than genocide such as crimes against humanity and torture Um, and it raises the the possibility that any state might be able to bring action in relation to those types of crimes before the international court as well. And finally, it really shows the significance of United Nations fact-finding missions. Um, The the mission to Myanmar, of course, was absolutely key to the International Court of Justice accepting the claims of Gambia, as well as key to Gambia's decision to bring the claim um, in the first place. And does international law offer other means of redress for situations such as the one we're talking about in Myanmar? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of different avenues, but I would just highlight a couple. Firstly, looking at individual criminal liability rather than the responsibility of the state as a whole, as the ICJ was looking at. Um, there are interesting developments in uh, a separate court in The Hague. So last November, the International Criminal Court authorized the prosecutor there to open a criminal investigation into Myanmar, and in particular the role of senior. Um, political and military individuals. And this is focusing on the deportation of the Rohingya to Bangladesh across the border. And this is jurisdictionally very interesting because Myanmar is not a party to the Roma Statute, which gives the International Criminal Court jurisdiction, but Bangladesh is. Uh, And so the court considered that there was enough of a territorial connection with potential crimes within the court's jurisdiction when you have the expulsion of a large number of individuals from a non-member state into a member state. So you have, if you like, the crimes are, if they amount 
to crimes as the court eventually decides, and the crimes are being completed on the territory of an ICC member state. Uh, and the, so that was quite a significant jurisdictional decision, which again may have some resonance for other uh, situations in the world at the moment. Uh, the second thing, and this is very topical, is that states can impose sanctions on financial sanctions on individuals or organizations which are involved in human rights abuses such as these. And you've probably seen that in July this year, the UK made its first sanctions designations under uh, powers which are called, generally referred to as Magnitsky powers after the case of Sergei Magnitsky in Russia. Uh, and this included, in fact, several senior Myanmar military figures. So there are now financial sanctions in the UK and many other states against um, individuals who are considered to have been involved in the Myanmar genocide. And again, this is a tool which is likely to be used increasingly to address uh, individual senior liability for abuses such as this. Um, and thirdly, there can be other economic measures as well. So just a couple of days ago, from the time that we're recording this, there are legislative proposals being raised in Parliament, which are aimed uh, directly at the Uyghur situation in China that Jackie mentions. And the proposal, which is very interesting, is that the government would not be allowed to pass any trade bill regulations if a high court judge makes a preliminary ruling that the trade partner state is committing genocide. As I say, this is aimed at China, which is obviously a potentially huge trade partner with the post-Brexit UK, but it could also clearly be used against states such as Myanmar. So it'll be very interesting to see whether that legislation goes through and how it's used. Uh, and you'll notice finally that one thing that's not on this list is the UN Security Council, unfortunately, because really this is just one of a sorry list of situations where the Security Council has failed to take any action in relation to horrendous situations around the world, other than basically wringing its hands. So I think that's a very, yeah, I'm not the first to say it, but that's a very great failure of the Security Council's lead leadership and its responsibility to protect the world from these situations. It's leaving it to individual member states, such as the Gambia, one of the smaller states in Africa, uh, has done more so far to protect the Rohingya than the combined might of the Security Council, which is, you know, a fantastic thing for Gambia to be doing, but a bit of an indictment of the um, council itself. Well, thank you so much, Alison and Jackie, for talking through that fascinating case, which I have to say has more of a poignant human element to it and on a mass scale uh, than much of the litigation that we're discussing in this series. And what an insight, too. I'd like to thank, as usual, Lucy Smith, uh, Head of Marketing at Essex Court Chambers, for her assistance in putting together this podcast. If you'd like any of the links to the sources of information discussed in this podcast, you'll be able to find those in the podcast notes wherever you're listening in from. I am and have been and remain Stephen Hausman, uh, your host for this podcast series, Please do join me next week for episode five when I'll be talking to Stephen Berry QC and David Walsh in Essex Court Chambers about the epic Russian bribery and corruption saga of Fiona Trust. <laughs>